This week on social media, I posted the question, what is a word in English that you consider either beautiful or wonderful? And the number of responses was pretty spectacular, about 50 responses, which typically if I post something on Facebook, if I get two responses, that's pretty solid. And there were all kinds of answers, so I picked out, apart from the jokers, and there's always jokers in the bunch, apart from the jokers, these are some of the words that, that we ended up, that people think in English are beautiful or wonderful, and they're words like compassion and grace and hope. And my brother Danny said serendipity and serene and childhood and freedom, relentless adoption, redeemed. Restoration is one of my favorite words in the world, and if, if, there was an entire, if you had to choose a word that describes what I hope will happen at Daylight Church, restoration very well could be that word. And somebody else wrote hitherto, and they gave, an, they, they, they gave a reason for that, which I was glad, otherwise it wouldn't make any sense at all. And they talked about how hitherto means up till now. And it's this idea that up until now, God has had your back, and so you don't have to worry about what's going to happen from here. And so it, it was pretty interesting. You've got your jokers. I had, I had one of my friends say gerrymandering because he always thinks of a guy named Jerry just mandering around. <laughs> and then, of course, you got some people who really like themselves a lot. Kate Barron decided that Kate is her favorite word. And she's, it's one of our favorite words too, Kate, so there you go. However, I did find this quote um, a few weeks ago that's been kind of rattling around in my brain quite a bit. And this, this guy is like a, a Hindu guru. Uh, and so he and I probably would not see eye to eye on a whole lot of stuff. But he, he did mention this. He said, we're all just walking each other home. And I just thought that was a really beautiful quote that, that kind of describes a lot of truth, in my opinion is that, that there's, there's something out there and, and we're in this communal journey as human beings to, to arrive at that thing. And like you saw in the movie clip, these guys, they really, in, in the clip, they didn't, they didn't get along too well. But then when he finds out that Dell has been suffering and that Dell is without a home, he, he does this word. And, and the word that I want to talk about today is the word invited. And I just, I just think invited is, is a really solid word. And I hope that we will be a church that's invitational, that we will breed a culture of invitation. And that gets uncomfortable at times, especially if you're an introvert like me, is you would rather just keep people out here. But invited means you let people in. And even, even as a church, it can be tempting to create that kind of insular, safe um, place where you know, we have our stuff and we have our community and our family. And I hope that we'll never evolve into that. The, the word invited, in my opinion, is... It almost describes everything that happens in life, everything good especially. When, when you think about that first breath that a baby takes, I remember when our, our new son Judson was born, there was a moment, there was about a, a, like an 18 or 20 second moment where he wasn't breathing and we're waiting for that, and, and then it happens, and, oh yes, yes, yes. But if you think about that breath being given to you as a gift by God, that very first breath and every single breath after that is an invitation. It's an invitation from God to experience. It's an invitation from God to see the beauty and wonder and amazement of his creation. And so life in, in, in and of itself is an invitation. You would not exist had God said, be, and issued that invitation of life to, for you to experience and to wonder. And if you look at the arts, if you look at painting, uh, you know, in, in general, what's so wonderful about the arts, and, and the visual arts especially, is you get invited 
into the life of the artist, into the mind of the artist. You get to experience what the artist experienced. You get to draw from the years and years and years of practice and hard work that they put in. And typically, I would think it would be extremely rare for an artist just to hide their work. It's more common for an artist to say, this is who I am, this is what I'm expressing. Here it is for the whole world to see. And so if you've ever enjoyed the visual arts, you've done so as a result of invitation. It's the same with dance. Uh, or orchestra and so forth. When you talk about music, in, in the case of dance, you're, you're getting in the mind of the dancers and, and specifically the choreographer. In the case of music, you're getting in with the instrumentalist, you're getting in with the composer, you're getting to experience their minds. And these are things that people put on display and invite the world to come and see. If, if, if you're a reader like me, you get invited into some of the greatest minds that have ever lived. I get to sit in the living room of Abraham Lincoln and read his thoughts. That's an incredible invitation. And all throughout life, what I, what I have thought about recently is this idea that really a lot of the great stuff that happens happens as a result of invitation. If you've been educated at all, you've been educated by invitation. If you've learned sound financial techniques, it's because someone invited you into their mind to learn the right techniques. So much of life is just invitation. It's cause and effect relationally is what it is. Invitation is relational cause and effect. I've been reading Thomas Merton's biography recently, and I, you'll hear me talk about him a lot because I've gotten turned on to him, and I'm really excited about learning and getting in his brain. And I get, I get that privilege because he's invited me too with his dozens of books that he's written. I'm invited into Thomas Merton's heart and mind. And one of the stories he tells in his autobiography is about his younger brother, and Thomas and his friends, I guess, started a, a gang, as much of a gang as like 11-year-olds can start. And they built a treehouse, and they were, I, I think it was a treehouse, and they were, they were taking scrapped materials and building this building and creating a club, basically. And Thomas Merton's younger brother would stand at a distance and watch them because he was not invited. He was too young. He was annoying to them. And they would even drive him off by throwing rocks if he, would, if he would try to approach. But he was so much wanting to be a part of their community and wanting to be a part of their gang that he would just stay out on the outskirts, far enough where he couldn't be pelted with rocks, waiting and hoping to get in. And at, at some moment later, that, and I'll tell you more about it later in the message, at some moment he was invited in. But the idea is that all of us are hungry for invitation. Invitation is something we all desperately want, and we desperately want it constantly. And so if we want to be lovers of people, invitation needs to be a consistent part of, my, of our lives. If you go through Scripture, you see, you see this. It's, it's almost a universal theme. You could almost say, what is the theme of the Bible in one word? And it might be invited. It might be that God invited us to live invited us to experience, invited us to breathe, and then he invited us close. He invited us to be part of his gang, not to stand at a distance and be far away and be afraid of him pelting us with rocks, but instead coming close. And so, like I said, it's almost a theme. Come follow after me, Jesus says to his first disciples. That's an invitation. Hurry and come down, he says to Zacchaeus, for I must stay at your house today. I am the Lord and there is no other. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near. And it continues, let the children come to me. Jesus approaches a Samaritan woman in the heat of the day at a well. And this well, the wells were the communal centers of the society at that time. 
And what would typically happen in those days is in the morning when it was cool and in the evening when it was cool, everyone would congregate at the well. And they'd exchange stories and, and get to know each other and, and talk, and that's where community happened. Well, this happens in the middle of the day when the sun is beating overhead, and Jesus, there's this Samaritan woman there. And the Samaritan woman is there because she's not invited into community. She's not invited into the culture of her day. She's an outcast. And Jesus approaches her and says, hey, would you, would you fix me some water? He invites her into conversation. A Jewish rabbi talking to a pagan, it, this doesn't happen. But he invites her into this conversation. And in that conversation, he says, whoever drinks of the water, I will give him, will never thirst. And later he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And so we see consistently throughout the life of Jesus, him inviting people, so much so that they pressed in on him all the time. And there were so many people touching him that he couldn't even tell who was touching him a lot of times. That's how invitational Jesus was. The invitation is the mission. If you, if you read what they call the Great Commission of Jesus, the Great Commission is to go into all the world and make what? Does anybody know? Disciples. Disciples. What is a disciple? A follower. So when Jesus says, this is your job, this is your mission as a church, he says, let people know they're invited. Let people know that I welcome them to come after me. I welcome them to follow after me. Invitation is the entire mission. It's, it's, it's being, we've talked about centered set theology recently, that we turn towards Jesus and we make him the focus and center of our lives. And invitation and discipleship is essentially saying, I will turn towards the center. I will make Jesus the center of my life, and I will invite anyone who will to come with me. To me, that's how you describe what we would call Christian evangelism, is I'm going towards the center. Who wants to come along? It's, it ain't fiery. We, we worry uh, when we talk about evangelism and we talk about outreach. We worry about the fire and hell, uh, the hell and fire, hell and the fire and brimstone preachers. Hell and phantom and I so not preachers. We worry about those guys constantly. I do anyway. We worry about being fiery, being brimstone, being that hammer-fisted person. But an invitation isn't that. When you say, and I'm not saying there isn't a place for some of that sometimes. But an invitation is just warm and welcoming. It means I'm going on this journey. Will you come along with me? There's a pastor here in church, Pastor Servant's Heart. His name's Dave Heigel. We were with him Friday night for our nightlight service. And he posted this on social media recently. He said, mercy triumphs over judgment. Goodness leads men to change. The religious mindset focuses on being sin conscious, but kingdom mindset focuses on being God conscious. It's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. Yay, God. We sometimes want to put people out there and say, here's the border that you need to cross. And that's what we call Christian evangelism. Whereas what we've been discussing recently, that it's, 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 it's totally different than that. Again, it's I invite you to come in the direction that I'm heading. You find in Scripture in 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul, um, who, who hated Christians, hated Christianity, was, was beating and imprisoning and killing Christians, had this massive conversion where Jesus appears to him, and it's just, he goes blind for three days, and then he's healed, and he, just this really amazing thing. Skeptics, in my opinion, have a very, very hard time dealing with what happened to the Apostle Paul. But Paul later says to the church, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. That's invitation. That's the gospel. 
That's, that's what it means to be evangelical. Not in the political sense, but to be a bearer of light. It means I have seen the light. Come with me. Come towards the light. Invitation also, in my opinion, fights and ultimately defeats loneliness. You hear in, in Christian community a lot of times people want to know how to get involved and they, they want to know how to connect with people. And that's, that's part of the goal of the church, in my opinion. And individual, all of us in this room want to know how, how do we experience deep and meaningful friendships? How do we really connect with people? And I'm convinced that invited and invitation is a huge part of that process on both sides. I'm going to talk a little bit more about community and, and friendship and how that develops in a moment. But I saw this quote that I, that I thought was poignant. It says, sadness is an invitation to God. When we experience loneliness and when we experience sadness, we feel down, we feel the blues. In some sense, that's a gift from God because it, allow, it allows us to hunger for what is good. See, we are meant to be relational people. We're meant to be connected and in community. We were hardwired to be like that. And I'll tell you why. It's because we were hardwired to love. And love does not exist outside of community, outside of communion, outside of fellowship. The, this word koinonia, which you'll find in the New Testament in the Greek, uh, it, it's translated most often in, in the New Testament as fellowship. And my buddy Titus Awakushe, who's been with us, says fellowship just equals fellows in the same ship. It means we're all in community together. And so if you want to deal with loneliness, if you want to deal with a lack of community, some of that falls on you and some of it falls on them. When we talk about friendship, in, in a sense, friendships, getting involved in community, it's a little bit like dating. It's, when, when you start dating someone, you, you, you are introduced to them, and then there's this process where you move a little bit closer and you see if they're going to respond and move a little bit closer. And then if they do, then you move a little bit closer and eventually you're locking lips, right? That's, that's kind of the romantic way of things often. And when, it's okay to talk about kissing in church, guys. Don't, you don't have to get all antsy on me. Um, but when it comes to friendships and relationships and community, it's that same type thing. It's you issue an invitation and they either do or don't respond to the invitation. And in responding, oftentimes there's an invitation given back. And the process of developing friendships is entirely almost a process of invitation. It's saying, I will let you in. I am asking you to be a part of my community or my life. It's a process of invitation. The, the words community and communal and communism and, and commiserate was one that I wasn't really sure about, so I looked it up this week because yesterday, oh gosh, yesterday about 3 o'clock, some of you saw this on Facebook. I, you know, I developed these over the, over the entire week. I work on these sermons and the presentation and trying to get my thoughts together, and I think in the shower and pray in the shower and sit outside and... And then I put, put it in a presentation, and the, the goal of the presentation is to spark my memory of the stuff that I've thought about so that I can share it with you. Well, about 3.08 yesterday, I think it was, a moment burned in my life forever. I logged on to my software, ProPresenter, which is what we use in here, to review my sermon, and it was gone. It was deleted. I, all it was was one black screen, and I just wanted to vomit. And my character that's deep buried in my heart came out and I pounded my desk and said, will you kids shut up down there? 
I mean, I just, tur it was like mentally, no, one of those moments where the camera pans out into space and I'm screaming. And I got online, because, and my first impulse was, I, I guess it must have been, I need friends. Because I get on Facebook and I type up a little description of what just happened. And I'm throwing it out there because I'm alone in my office suffering and I want you people to suffer with me. I mean, that, isn't that the reality of why we do something like that on, on Facebook or Twitter? It's because I want you to feel my pain and feel sorry for me. And in it, there, there's a long dialogue that occurs. And one of my friends said, it's okay to commiserate with friends. And I thought, I have no, I've, I've heard that word. I know it's like commissary. It's the same root. Uh, and I looked it up, and the interesting thing about commiserate is it does talk about suffering, that when you commiserate, you're engaging in empathy over someone else's suffering. And I know that that's what I was looking for. And I, I, something happened while I was, it, it, it really helped me out of that situation. There was some joking that went on, on. I just went back and forth and tried to forget about the presentation for a while. And I noticed at the bottom of the screen, all of a sudden, four dots appeared, and it said, a friend is typing a message. And I thought, that's what I needed. That's what I was looking for. And some of, you know, you, you still get your jokers, the people that aren't helpful at all, and you know who you are. <laughs> but I, I know that's what I was looking for. And you see, I issued an invitation into my suffering, and they issued an invitation for me to respond to them, and it was this circle of life thing that happened as we commiserated together. And you take all these words that are beautiful, like community and communion, and they, they, they're tied into this Greek idea of fellowship, that we're all in this together, shared by many. If you really want to get back to the root meaning of that Greek word, that's what it means. It means shared by many. And your life will not be shared by many unless you get a hold of this word invitation, unless you start to allow people in. And so all these words, I, you know, I, again, I'm just throwing this sermon together yesterday afternoon, and, and all these words are scroll, scrolling through my head. And, you know, when we talk about fellowship and, and and we talk about family and transparency and discipleship, your friendships. Your friendships require invitation. Your family, your family will be strengthened and stronger if you will issue invitations. Hey, let's go to the park together. Say that to your family, and your family will be strengthened. You'll, you're issuing invitations. Let me tell you about my day. Invitation. I'm inviting you into my life. That's where your friendships and your family and discipleship are, are strengthened. And discipleship is that, is that kind of Christian-easy word uh, that, that, again, just means a follower. And so churches all the time have discipleship programs. It's a, it's a systematic approach to how do we make people read their Bibles a lot or you know, get, give their money to the church or all these different things. And to me, and, and all, a lot of those things are important, but to me, when we talk about discipleship, we're talking about followers. That's, that's what we're talking about. And followers are people who respond to invitations. And so as Christians, if we want to be a follower of Jesus, Jesus was a guy who invited everybody. Well, then what does that mean our lives should look like? What does that mean for us? Even great leadership requires invitation. This, this, is, this is kind of the process of developing a leader. Uh, if you read leadership books, this process comes out over and over. So let's, let's take, for example, Julie, and Julie has headed up our hospitality ministry, and, and many of you have been trained by her on how to get here on time and set up the tables and 
produce good coffee. If you had good coffee today, then it's a result of Julie's. If it, if it was lousy coffee, it's because it's a rookie, okay? <laughs> but the idea of leadership over, say, hospitality is that she does it. She learns how to do the task. She learns how to do the job. Then she invites someone to come observe her do the task, right? This is step two. So step one is her doing the task. Step two is inviting someone to watch. Step three is inviting that person to do the task while she watches. That's oversight. And then step four is to allow them to do the task, to invite them to take over. It's working yourself out of a job. That's how churches grow. That's how organizations thrive, is you learn to do the job, you show someone how to do the job, you watch them do the job, you free them to do the job. And then those people who have been freed start the process over. That's how churches are grown. That's how organizations thrive. So even effective leadership is essentially one long line of invitation. I've been thinking about church growth and reading some doctoral thesis statements about how to grow a church. And, and I've, come up, I've come up with kind of a conclusion that there are basically four categories that, that we're concerned about as we attempt to, to grow a successful and thriving church. And when, you, when you've got a church... You've got, you've got these people, and Ed Stetzer, the guru of church planting and church growth, says what you're looking for is to grow that left category. So in a church of about 100, which is what we have on a Sunday morning, he estimates that you're going to have 25 to 35 people that he would describe as having buy-in. They own the church. The church is theirs. They show up and they make coffee. They, they, they contribute to the programs. They lead small groups. They view the church as their church, and they own it. And he says, in order to get to 200 and 300 and 500 people, what you want is for that number of 35 people with buy-in to turn to 100 people with buy-in. By the time you've reached that point, you're already a church of 200. And, and the goal isn't numbers, but the goal is, in my opinion, it's almost like power. It's the ability to affect a community. It's the ability to affect lives. And the more people you have in an organization, the more thriving the organization becomes, the more powerful the organization becomes, the more effective the organization is. But in a church, you've got people with buy-in. And again, you know who you are. You know whether you have buy-in in the church or not. Then you've got people who are kind of like the fringe. They attend. They may show up for some stuff here and there, but they don't own the church. You've got people who are observers. So that's your online community. We have a bunch of people that watch our services. And you've got people who are visitors. They show up. They check it out. They're looking. And then finally, and I didn't know how to, how to describe these people, but I put them as the not-at-alls. It means they're just not engaged with the church. They may not even know we exist. So how do you, how do you move people from being not-at-alls, completely unengaged, completely unaware, to being an observer, to checking us out? And then from being a person who has checked us out to maybe becoming a fringe person who attends regularly, is kind of dipping their feet in the water, and getting involved, and then how do you move those people into people who say, this is my church community, I own it, I love it, I'm engaged. Can anybody think of a word that probably applies to moving all those categories to the left? Yeah, it really is. It's, it, the not-at-alls need to be invited. They need to say, hey, they need to know there's this community out there that's fascinated with Jesus, and if, if you're at all inclined in that direction, come check it out. And if they check it out, we invite them to come in deeper. And if they come in deeper, we invite them to buy in. It's, it's all a process of invitation. And what it means is that wherever you are on this scale, whatever, wherever you fit in this lineage, 
your job is invitation. It's being open to people and saying, hey, would you come, extending yourselves. This is my buddy, Joe Whitus. And Termaine laughs immediately at the face of Joe Whitus because Joe is a character. You just have to know him. This is him holding up a certificate because recently he, he caught a short-nosed gar. He's a fisherman. He fishes a lot. And he caught a short-nosed gar that was big. And he took pictures of it next to a, a, a big ruler of sort, a fish measurer of sorts. And he, for some reason, he, he sent it off. And he now holds the world record for the longest short-nosed gar ever caught. Just the wildest, weirdest thing. But if you knew Joe Whitus, it was like, of course you do. Of course you're the world record gar catcher. He, he's, just, he, he, he's just an amazing, interesting guy. But he was attending school at Murray State University, and he was rooming with a guy named Adam Mathis. And Adam was involved in our campus ministry, and Adam kept continually inviting Joe to come check it out. Joe was a not-at-all. And Joe was verbal about being a not-at-all. He was saying, I ain't going. Those people are crazy. I'm not interested. And Adam every now and then said, hey, I'm going to church. Would you like to go with me? No, I ain't having it. No way. I'm not interested. Leave me alone. But they were friends, and he could get away with that. Well, one time, Joe comes home after meeting a girl on campus, and he's telling Adam about it, this gorgeous hot babe that he just met, and saying, I gave her my phone number, and I just can't wait for her to call. And Adam says, she's not going to call. And Joe says, oh, she'll call. And if you know Joe, it's like, of course Joe says that. Oh, she's going to call. Adam says, she's not going to call, Joe. Joe says, she will call. Adam says, I'll bet you she doesn't call. And if she doesn't call, you have to go to church with me Wednesday. <laughs> Joe said, fine, she's going to call. <coughs> Next Wednesday, Joe was in church. <laughs> and the interesting thing is, Joe has probably not missed a church service since that day. He was not interested in being involved with those crazy people. But he came, he observed, he became a part of the organization. He eventually bought in. Now he, he, he says he rededicates his life to Jesus every morning. That's what he does with his prayer times of the morning is he just makes himself Jesus's again. And it all happened because Adam said, I'll bet you she doesn't call. I'd sure like you to come to church with me. And it wasn't obnoxious and fiery and annoying. They were friends, and Joan knew that Adam was involved in this church thing. And you can invite a thousand people to church and maybe a hundred will say they'll come. And out of those hundred, maybe 10 will actually come. I mean, you got to, it's a pretty consistent, persistent thing to actually get someone to show up. But I'm not, I'm not talking even entirely just about inviting people to church right now. I'm talking about a lifestyle of I'm going somewhere. Would you like to go along? Even if it's just coffee, even if it's just a new restaurant you heard about. Uh, today at the Thanksgiving banquet, now you're thinking, I'm going to serve the community. But isn't it possible that your neighbor that you've struck up a few conversations might be interested in serving community as well? I mean, aren't there, aren't there probably people that you know that you work with, that you're friends with, families that you've hung out with and had play dates with? Aren't, isn't there a possibility that for something like this, they would happily come and serve? Even if they want nothing to do with us on Sunday mornings, what I'm saying is you're living a life where hopefully Jesus is coming into focus and becoming the center, and your life is meant to be an example to others and meant to be an invitation to others. And so I hope that, that you and I, that we will as a community be invitational in everything we do, everywhere we go, no matter what we're doing, that we'll invite people. So three quick questions. Who do you invite? There's a parable that Jesus tells about a leader 
and the leader's throwing a party, and he wants the, the, his servants to go out and invite basically all the rich people to the party, all the cool kids. Invite the cool kids to the party. And the servants come back, and they say, none of the cool kids can come because they're way too cool. They just got way too much going on. He says, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go get the bums. I want you to go out in the streets and find the blind and the maimed and the crippled and the people who are just laying around in the streets and the beggars and the outcasts and the disenfranchised. I want you to find them, and you bring them to my party. And he opens the doors and invites them, and the house is full. And that's, that's the idea of Jesus. So when the question is, who do we invite? It's going to often be people that you wouldn't necessarily invite on your own strength and power and ideas. And I, I talked about Thomas Merton's brother. And they had started this gang, and apparently there was another rival gang. Only these gangs were an actual gang. And Thomas Merton and his three friends used to go hurl insults at this rival gang's house. Uh, the, the place where they hung out, a warehouse or something like that, and they'd go hurl insults and try to be real, you know, bravado and brave. And, and uh, they never responded. This, the gang was older and there were more of them, and I think they just thought these kids were nothing. Well, at one point, this rival gang congregates outside of Thomas Merton's house, and they're just waiting there. And there's no telling what they're waiting for, but there's a bunch of them. There's four of, his, of Thomas Merton's gang, and there's like 11 or 15 of these other kids. And he said they're just standing around with their hands in their pocket. And uh, they sneak out the back and through the woods and out to another friend's house, and they watch from there, trying to figure out what's going on. Well, his little brother comes out of the house and walks right up to the other gang, maybe also with his hands in his pockets, just, I, I imagine him whistling a tune. And he just strolls right through those guys and looks them all in the eye and looks, you know, just, and just without a fear, just walks right through that rival gang and over to the house where Thomas and his friends are. And if I, 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 may, I, I, don't, I may not remember correctly, but it seems like he said something like, what's wrong with you guys? And from then on, he was in. From then on, he didn't stand at a distance while they threw rocks at him. From then on, he was invited into the community. And we have a propensity to invite people who we admire, to invite people who we like, who are rich, who smell good. We have this propensity to, to invite people who make life maybe easier. And that wasn't the, the way Jesus talked about it. He's, he said, you don't invite just the people that have impressed you. You invite everybody. Everybody's invited to the banquet of God. How do you keep from getting overwhelmed? Because there's a whole lot of people out there, and if you're going to invite everybody, it just gets crazy. Jesus himself had to withdraw from the crowds. How do you do that? Well, I have a couple pieces of advice. One, the fight is worth it. Better to invite too many than too few because you're too selfish to let people in. And two, there is, just like there's only one you, there's only one them, and you can only handle so much and they can only handle so much. And what I've found is that if you'll be extremely invitational for your entire life, you, it seems to happen that the circles you're able to influence typically will be pretty manageable. I think this is just a fear that you can wipe off the table. Be as invitational as you can and let the cards fall where they fall. And finally, what if you're an introvert? Introverts, by definition, want to keep their, their inter, their in me. And that's natural and normal for an introvert. And so there's this idea, I want to keep people out here unless they're my inner circle. And to the introvert, like myself, I want to say, repent. Get over it. Don't be insular and selfish because you're an introvert. See, the cross, Jesus said, come and follow me, an invitation. He said, and take up your cross and follow me. 
See, Christianity was never about you being everything that you feel like you ought to be, everything that feels right in your life. In some sense, Christianity is about laying down everything that comes naturally. It's about laying down everything that feels normal. And so in my opinion, introverts, and maybe repent is a strong word. I just mean turn when I say that. Introverts have to fight to let people in and to be welcoming like Jesus is. Extroverts have to fight to learn how to be alone and meditate and pray and surrender to God as a solo human being. Everybody has stuff they need to lay down at the feet of Jesus, introvert or extrovert. But as an introvert, you might think, I don't want to invite anybody in. I don't want to attend a small group. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. I don't even want to show up and serve people at Site 61. I'm saying, get over it. you got to fight that stuff. And you, you, you can still recharge by yourself, and you ought to, but I'm saying you, you need to stretch yourself. And I'll close with this idea. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all you who are tired and carry heavy loads. And he says, I will give you rest. Again, from beginning to end, the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus is this message of invitation that God is inviting you into the life of God, the rest of God. And so I want to extend that invitation to you and say, if you're here and you've never responded to the invitation of Jesus, I want you to know he's waiting with open arms. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how burdened you are and how much of that burden came from you. None of that matters. Scripture also teaches, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I am knocking on your door. Will you invite me in? It's that relationship thing where you invite and they invite and you invite and they invite. And Jesus is the kind that takes eight steps towards you when you take one step towards him. And I would encourage you, take some time and pray and talk to Jesus and say, I want to respond to your invitation. I'm coming to you.